Welcome to Footnote, a show about overlooked history. I'm Emily Gaddick. In this episode, we're tackling time. At the third stroke, it will be 8.30 precisely. Those electronic pips represent a revolution in the way we think about time. Not as something to be measured by the passing of the stars and the sun, but as a steady beat counted out in rational, scientific terms. It wasn't a shift that came easily. People died in droves because of disagreements about what time it was. In the U.S., it was a decision heavily influenced by powerful corporations. But more on that in a bit. Let's get started with how time used to be. I'm Anthony Cook. I'm the Astronomical Observer of Griffith Observatory, and I'm in charge mainly of telescopes, and I also do our sky information, sunrise time, sunset times, meteor showers, comets, the planets, and all that kind of stuff. Anthony and his fellow astronomers are some of the few people left who tell time the old-fashioned way, by looking up. In astronomy, uh, we use a kind of time called sidereal time, and that's time reckoned by the position of the stars from your local place. So we have a specific sidereal time for Griffith Observatory. And basically it tells us what is right overhead at that moment. But just because it's based on nature doesn't mean it always comes naturally. I asked him offhand what he thought the local sidereal or star-based time was when we sat down last December. Let, let me reason this out for a second. Uh, Vic, let me look at something real quick. If I don't remember which coordinate. See, the spring, first point of spring is... At this point, yeah, Anthony decided to consult a computer program hours, Griffith's right. astronomers used to help orient the observatory telescope. Would be 18 hours. That's just first. Basically, what he's laying out is the cornerstone of how humans across the world have measured time for thousands of years. By charting the progress of the sun, stars, and planets across the sky. We headed outside to look at a more familiar traditional way of telling time, the sundial. On this particular day, it was also serving as a home base for a group of boys playing tag. Well, you can see right now this is reading um, 1.30. How accurate this is depends on how fastidious we are in uh, setting it. Do you know what this is? Yeah. Yeah. How, can you read that? You want to look for the shadow of this thing called the Naman, and it goes onto the time dial. Oh, oh you guys have watches on. What does your watch say? I'm um, 131. Okay, and this is reading about 132, so it looks yeah, like it's that's exactly yeah. how my, That is actually really cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but how do you figure out the 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock? Oh, you have to look for these one. these numbers, the big numbers. Oh, so there's one, one two, there's two. Oh, so the 132 right now. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, guys, go. That is really cool. <laughs> <laughs> See, it still works. <laughs> so what's the problem with telling time the old-fashioned way? Kids love it. Astronomers adore it. It's natural and in sync with the rhythms of the Earth. You may have caught the answer earlier. If you measure time from high noon, when the sun is directly above your head, every place on Earth will have a slightly different noon. 
For example, Griffith Observatory, which is on the eastern edge of LA, is about three minutes behind Riverside, a town roughly 60 miles inland. Those three minutes were not an issue for most of human history, when it could take days to go 60 miles. No one was ever going fast enough to notice that his watch wasn't in sync with the guy living a couple towns over. They didn't even have watches to compare. But all that changed roughly 180 years ago, when people started traveling by train. It's hard to overstate the change trains made to nearly every aspect of American life. In 1800, it took six weeks to go from Chicago to New York. By the 1860s, it took two days. Trains opened up previously inaccessible parts of the country for settlement, made it possible to ship everything from soldiers to mail to oranges across the nation. Train travel meant ordinary people were traveling faster, farther, and in greater numbers than ever before in history. It opened up our world. But it was also killing people. On a lovely summer morning in August 1853, near Pawtucket, Rhode Island, a train conductor named Frederick Putnam pulled out his pocket watch. His train was running late. Around a curve was a section of track called the Boston Switch that ran only one way, where conductors had to alternate. According to his watch, Putnam had a few minutes before a northbound train would be on that one-way track, forcing him to wait. Eager to make up time, he ordered his engineer to pour on the speed so they'd be the first train through. The other train was already on the switch. The two trains collided at full speed, killing 14 people and injuring another 60. It was the last straw in a heinous year for train accidents. 1853 had seen 65 train wrecks and 165 deaths across the country, including President-elect Franklin Pierce's son, Bernie. Bernie's death, compounded by the sight of his crushed and nearly decapitated body, threw Pierce's wife into a deep depression. She spent her time in the White House draping rooms in mourning bunting and writing heartbreaking letters to her dead son. Her husband, who took office just two months after the accident, essentially drank himself to death. The railroads realized that something had to be done before the government stepped in. In the case of the Rhode Island accident, the tragedy could have been prevented if only the two conductors had the same time on their watches. Management decided that each line would have a standard time. If a train line started in Philadelphia, say, all its conductors would be on Philadelphia time, all the way through their run, instead of consistently adjusting their watches in every town they passed through. In big cities, this idea wasn't so radical. Citizens in New York, for example, had given up telling time by the sun in favor of citywide standardized time years ago. Western Union would drop a time ball. Think of the New Year's Eve ball drop in Times Square, minus the mirrors and flashing lights. From a tall building at exact noon, so the whole city could synchronize their watches. 
Eventually, many small towns began to give up their time in favor of the local railroad time. But there were still over a dozen different railroad times in the U.S. Pressure to consolidate a national standard time began to build. By 1863, there was at least one proposal for standardized time zones similar to the zones we use today. But it wasn't until the 1880s that all the major railroads agreed to adopt four time zones, which roughly corresponded to our current eastern, central, mountain, and Pacific zones. Finally, on November 3, 1883, standardized time was implemented by railroad companies in the U.S. and Canada. The plan was for every town to stop its clock at local noon, wait for standard time to catch up, and start the clocks again. The press quickly dubbed it the day of two noons. Here's how things went down in New York City, according to the New York Times. A large crowd gathered in the vicinity of the city hall to watch the change as indicated on the faces of the clock, which rests under the statue of the restored Cypriot Antique of Justice. There was a universal expression of disgust when it was discovered that all that was necessary to effect the change was to stop the clock for four minutes and then start it again. But not everyone agreed with standard time. Some thought it blasphemous, since God clearly intended us to tell time by the sun. Others found it an example of big government run amok, trampling the rights of states and territories to regulate their own time. For the next 30 years or so, towns or even whole states would rebel against standard time and go back to local. It wasn't until 1918 that the U.S. made standard time into federal law. It's now based on the time kept by the National Institute of Standards and Technology's atomic clock in Boulder, Colorado, a clock so precise it will neither gain nor lose a second in more than 100 million years. That doesn't mean the battle over time is over. It's just moved to space. Astronomers and the agencies which run GPS satellites are currently battling over the leap second. The leap second is an adjustment that's used to keep our atomic time in sync with the Earth's rotation. It would be far easier to coordinate the GPS system if we used atomic time instead of having to constantly adjust for imperfect solar time. But if we do that, we'll drift slowly out of sync with nature. The positions of constellations in the sky will no longer match our clocks, or eventually our calendars will have lost our connection with the origin of time. Thank you to astronomer Anthony Cook for speaking with me. And thank you for listening. If you liked what you heard, you can find more Footnote online at footnotepodcast.com and on soundcloud.com slash footnotepodcast or on iTunes under podcasts. Until next time.